0: I had a, a couple of questions just on what I meant, so I might spend 30 seconds or so on that. Um, when I said that the stone in the Matthew 2143 that's a quote from the Old Testament, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. The stone that was rejected is Christ, and the builders were, as Israel, scribes and Pharisees. And then He's telling them that eventually he's going to become the chief cornerstone, or, or just a cornerstone. And if you read on, it says they realized he was talking about them, <laughs> which which didn't win any points at that time. Uh, then another question was was I t- talking about in three two Romans three two? Was I talking about the scripture or about promises? well, there's an overlap there because I'm talking about the promises in Scripture. That the that what gives Israel the advantage is not what's gone in the past, but that they have these promises in the Scripture. The sayings of God have been recorded and that those promises are still good so they can look forward to having a physical kingdom and a temporal destiny, we could say. Historical a purpose on earth and so on. Now, we don't need to spend much time on it but I just I don't have page numbers on my copy of notes I, I don't know whether you do or not. All right. Page three it's where it says see diagram one right above that This entire passage and arguments based on the assumption that Israel is still Israel during this church age. And I said that I was going to cover something. I almost skipped over that. Uh, Let's back up a minute since I brought that up. There are two passages. The first one we've looked at was in Romans 9.6. Where it says... It's not such a thing that the Word of God has fallen off for all those of Israel. These are not Israel. And that is often taken to mean some other people are Israel. So now Gentiles are Israel, spiritual Israel, and that's the church. Out of all those uses of Israel, I said there are only two that... well I don't think you can get around either one of those either but I mean they think they can Uh, the other one is in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 16 let me start uh, reading verse 14 and in my case may it never be that I boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world for neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision but a new creature and as many as take their steps or walk we could probably say by this canon by this rule peace upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God and there we have uh, the statement to Israel of God and this one is also Uh, Used to argue that this is talking about the church. Of course, they can't really get it out of here because it says, Peace be upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. And that term Israel isn't ever used of anybody but Israel. It's not used of the church. And they're left with an extra... (coughs) and hanging out in the air that there's nothing you can do with if you're going to take it the way they often do and here's a way it's sometimes taken peace be upon them and mercy even upon the Israel of God but you have this extra and hanging around so the question is what is the Israel of God what's he talking about there all kinds of disagreements I think and I haven't seen anything particularly done with this but we can figure it out from Romans 9.6. Now this one may be a little trickier. (laughs) I'll be like the guy who wrote Hebrews, he says, "Uh, you people ought to be teachers, I'm going to have to give you milk, and then he turns around and talks about the Melchizedek and priesthood of Christ and all, and I thought, is that the ABCs? Paul says in 9.6, it's not such a thing as that the word of God has fallen off course because all those of Israel are not Israel. What, what does he mean by that second Israel? Well, we could get an insight into it by looking at the next line because he's saying the same thing and spelling it out for us. Neither because they're Abraham's seed or all children, now, I might wonder what that means, but he says, in Isaac your seed shall be called, and then he defines it in verse 8. That is, not, it's not the children of the flesh that are the children of God, but the children of the promise are reckoned for the seed. So now we know that when he says that about Abraham, what he's saying there really is, all of Abraham's children of the flesh are not children of God. Notice what he said. That is, verse 8, it's not the children of the flesh that are the children of God, but the children of promise. So he's talking about Abraham's son Isaac. So we see that the all seed is the children of the flesh. The ones that are in the line that he's talking about here are the children of God. So I can just take that same thing back up here and what we have in verse 6 is all those of Israel, that is Israel according to the flesh, are not Israel, and he doesn't say anymore, but not Israel of God. Same thing that we have in Galatians 6.16. Israel of God is the ones of Israel that are children of God. So I would say like this, it's not that the word of God's fallen off course because all those physically of Israel, these are not Israel of God. That is, they're not children of God. But but that's not dragging in other people. He's just saying these of Israel are not, all of Israel are not children of God. Only some of them are. Well, on back on that uh, page I just pointed out there, uh, I would say this is what we call dispensational in perspective. We probably, just automatically a lot of us take it that way. But this entire passage, even people that are amillennialists and theologians are doing this more now. Uh, sometimes I wonder the fact that Israel's back in the land, uh, maybe that's affecting people. We have different theologians coming up with different things, but notice the advantage that Paul's talking about is to the Jews, to the circumcision. So it's very clear. As separate from the church and from Gentiles. The promises that he's talked about, they're for Israel. They were disbelieved by Israel and they don't apply to the church. If they did come to be applied to the church, like some people have said, then they wouldn't be advantages for Jews anymore, which is what Paul, the question Paul's answering in the three runs And the whole question was raised in the first place, not because it's a church issue, but because it's a question regarding these promises given to Israel in the Old Testament. So all I'm saying is he's very careful to make this distinction between Gentiles, Jews, and the church like he says in 1 in Corinthians, that divides everything up into these three uh, groups. All right, so now we're ready to go to the next subject here. Or maybe I should say I'm ready to go. to. Uh, you might might have a lot of questions. Once I figured out what I think he's talking about here, I became more conscious of it, and I realize people say uh, what I'm saying here and there, but we don't often hear much about it, and that is God has a plan for the world. He has a purpose. It's not just random going on until one day he just chops it off. I hate to give away everything in the beginning, but it's right there already <laughs> anyway. Uh, God is going to use in Israel to evangelize the world. That, that's what we're going to see. That he's Paul's going to say that explicitly, and as God's going to use Israel to save as many people as possible. In other words, Israel has a historical destiny, a temporal destiny, and God isn't treating them specially just because he's partial to them. He has a purpose for them. Remember Jonah? God tried to get him to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go and he had all kinds of trouble. And he's still sitting up on the hill uh, overlooking the city and all upset. And God said, shouldn't I have, uh, you know, showed some mercy on all these people? Including six score and so many that don't even know their right hand from the left, and then it's ended in many cattle <laughs> instead of blasting that place. Um, but let's look and see what it says. A little background present status of Israel uh, without going back in those passages and actual we'll, uh, looking Romans, but only a remnant are saved right now. We might hear more about it uh, now than we used to, but it's still not the nation as a whole. It's a small percentage that are being saved now. And in Romans chapter 11, going back to Romans, by the way, these passages in Acts are where Paul's functioning in Acts, so it, it can be Pauline eschatology still, but I'm just saying we we can take that for granted, I think, what it says there. But in Romans 11, after Paul's going through chapter 9 and said that right now Israel's basically hardened just like Pharaoh, remember, Pharaoh was hardened. Historically here, Moses was shown mercy. That's an historical thing. Neither one of them dealing with salvation or or eternal uh, things, but uh, roles here on this earth. And then Paul said at the end of chapter 9, in verse 30, uh, summing up the situation, what then shall we say that the Gentiles who are not pursuing righteousness obtain righteousness? but it's righteousness which comes by faith. But Israel pursuing a law for righteousness didn't arrive at the law. They didn't even, they're going after righteousness through the law and they didn't even successfully do that. Why? Because not of faith, but as of works. We'd have to put in there because they sought it not by faith, but by works. They stumbled at the stone of stumbling 9.33 just like it's written behold I place in Zion a stumbling stone and an offensive rock and the one who believes on him won't be put to shame. And then in chapter 10 notice what he says there the first part brethren the good pleasure of my heart my request towards God for them is for salvation. They're not saved as a whole. For I testify to them that they have a zeal for God but it's not according to knowledge for since they're ignorant of the righteousness of God and they're seeking to establish their own righteousness that is by works they weren't subject to the righteousness of God because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then he shows all the gospel simple in the rest of this chapter there's only one thing that's essential. That is, a person has to hear the gospel. He goes through it from the reverse side, but how are they going to hear unless somebody's sent? And he takes it all the way back. But what he's showing there is that God has done everything for Israel. He's brought them the message and they've heard it. And it's just like the quarterback handing the ball over uh, to somebody. Uh, Now the ball's in their court. and uh, Well, I jumped in. In his hands, that would be t- tennis or basketball, I guess. Uh, but they heard it, so he en- he ends up and he says at the end of of chapter ten, verse sixteen. But they didn't all obey the gospel because Isaiah said. So he says even back in the Old Testament, Isaiah said, "Lord, who believed our report? Nobody's paying attention to what we're saying." And Paul says. So then, faith comes from the report. You can't believe until you hear something to believe. You don't just walk around with a pocket full of faith looking for something to put it in. Uh, your faith doesn't come till you hear the gospel. But when you're faced with it, then there's this reaction. The report is through the word about Christ. But I say, didn't they hear that's not how I would translate it, normally, but I don't want to... It's in effect what he's saying. Didn't they hear the answer? Yes. They heard. Didn't Israel know? Yes. So they've... God's sent people to them. They've preached to them. They've heard the gospel. Now all they have to do is believe it. And that's it. But so far, they haven't done it because they don't understand God's righteousness they're trying to establish their own through works. That's where we are. And when he finishes there, he comes to chapter 11. And you might think the same way. These objections, I would imagine Paul had a lot of these after he was saved. He's trying to figure out how all this fit together. And if he didn't have them, I'm sure when he started preaching to his Jewish friends that he, got, uh, he had to figure out some answers. I say then, 11.1, God didn't set aside or reject his people, did he? This is taken a lot of different ways, but I would say this. Paul says, no, because I'm an Israelite. All kinds of weird, I mean the people hold it, don't call them weird. (laughs) But views that, it seems to me it's simple. Paul's saying he didn't reject him because I'm saved and what he's talking about being rejected and he's saying well then are they out of it so they can't get saved and Paul said no I'm saved and in addition he goes on don't you know what the scripture said in Elijah how he intercedes to God against Israel Lord they killed your prophets they dug down your altars and I'm the only one left and they're seeking my life but what did the Words say to him, I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who haven't bowed to need to Baal. So he says there are 7,000 people that have not bowed to needed to Baal. And Elijah, you don't know who they are, but I know who they are. And I've set them aside for myself. God's aware of them. Then Paul says, but what, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 5. Therefore, thus also, in the present time, there is a remnant according to an election of grace. And if it's by grace, it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace isn't grace. So he said, but the issue is, there's, there's a remnant. Paul's part of that remnant. There was a remnant clear back here in Elijah's time. Out of that whole nation, 7,000 7, men, So there may have been 15,000, 20,000 counting women and children. But still a remnant. Here's Isaiah, Lord who believed our report. But Paul says, at the present time there is this remnant. Verse 7, what then? That which Israel seeks after, she didn't obtain it. But the election obtained it and the rest were hardened. So that's where we are now. That's where they are now. But, as it says plenty of places, all they have to do is believe. They've heard all they have to do is believe and they can get saved. So they haven't been rejected in the sense that they can't believe and get saved. But, as a nation, it's different. So then we come to verse 11. Excuse me. We've been through a couple of these next points: They're individual standings, due solely to faith or a lack of faith. Uh, Romans 9:30, and we've just looked at some of those passages. And then point three: their enemies disobedient. We just looked at that last time at the end of chapter uh, 11, where it says their enemies. Regarding the gospel, because of you Gentiles' sake, but regarding the election, they are beloved because of the patriarchs, we could say, of the fathers in that sense. Now, in B, God's purpose for Israel, beginning in verse 11. I say then, they didn't stumble in order that they fall, did they? no. Now, almost everybody takes it this way: They didn't stumble so that they fell. Might not be a great difference, but I don't think that's quite right, because what that when they say no," and that's what he says, if you stay with that, it would say no, they didn't fall. That's what we call a result. They didn't stumble with the result that they fell Paul says down in verse 22 they did fall, behold there for uh, God's severity and mercy upon those who have fallen, that's Israel this construction is normally a purpose construction uh, there's some fine arguments, I don't know why people, they're like a lot of things they just seem for some reason they don't want to go with that I think this is a purpose construction here, and he's saying, and even though the subject isn't given, the God's understood. This wasn't why they stumbled, was it? In order that they'd fall? No, they did fall, but that wasn't the purpose behind all this. In addition, if you go with that other view so that they fell, what the the interpreters are saying, and there isn't anything theologically wrong with this, is no they didn't fall permanently. But the word permanently isn't in there. And if you take it as a result and then say that they are going to be brought back one of these days, we don't have... Paul says no and then he doesn't give an explanation until we get over to verse 25. I don't know any place else he does that. After he gives one of those questions and says no, he usually gives the an answer right there and explains it instead of waiting like 10 verses before he gets on to it. And besides, this all fits well with the purpose here of what God's doing. So let's look at it. No, they didn't stumble for the purpose that they'd fall, although they did fall. See, they're they're out of it now. They're going to be called cast away, uh, rejected. It's a time of their defeat. There are all kinds of terms that are used here. Here's what Paul says. No, but by their offense, that is their sin, especially in crucifying the Messiah, salvation is to the Gentiles. That's the first step. What they have done has taken them out of the central role and now salvation is going to the Gentiles. Well, most of us can be thankful for that because if it wasn't, we'd all be lost waiting for Israel to get straightened away. And it's been 2,000 years now and we don't know how much longer. But because of what they did, salvation is now going to the Gentiles. That's the church. I just look at that and I say, Lord, I'm glad that you you knew it all along. But you had a parentheses in your plan regarding Israel, because if if you didn't do anything but stayed on track with Israel, and all the rest of the world had to wait for Israel to get straightened out, then we'd all be lost. And uh, of course, we wouldn't know. <laughs> We wouldn't know we were lost until we ended up there. But salvation's gone to the Gentiles. Well, we know that. Almost everybody understands that. A consequence of what Israel did, salvation is going out everywhere. The gospel's going. And the church is trying to evangelize the world and do all this. But that's not the the sole point that Paul's going to make here. Trying to look at my notes occasionally since you have a copy of those. Notice what he says next. This is a purpose construction. So let me translate. By their offense, salvation is gone to the Gentiles in order to provoke them, that is Israel, to jealousy. That doesn't mean God doesn't care. He's just saving the Gentiles strictly to, to provoke Israel to jealousy, but that's uh, one of the reasons that salvation is going out to the Gentiles and the way it's going to function is to provoke Israel to jealousy. Where do you get that idea? Well, it's over here in chapter 10 in verse 19 in one of those Old Testament quotations. Paul said in 1019, but I say, isn't Israel here? First, Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by that which is not a nation. By a non-understanding nation, I'll aggravate you. And Isaiah speaks boldly. He had to if you're going to say this around Israel. I was found by those not seeking me, that is the Gentiles. I became manifest to those who weren't asking for me. But to Israel, he said, all day long I have stretched forth my hands to a disobedient, and I'd probably say a back-talking people, something like that. Uh, so there's quite a bit of uh, difference there that he's saying. So this is to provoke them to jealousy. What? And this is, of course, we would probably all be familiar with this, that eventually it's going to work out through what's going on with the church to Israel's salvation, that eventually they're going to realize that's our Messiah. We're the ones that belong in there. Thankfully, when all Israel gets saved, they're going to be like us. When we're glorified, we're going to be better people. (laughs) We are now. And uh, they're not going to have some of the antipathy towards the uh, Gentiles that they might have at this time. When they get saved, they're, when others has provoked a jealousy it doesn't mean they are going to go around and, and try to fight with the Gentiles they're going to be just like somebody I don't know if it's a good illustration or not but it, your your wife is uh, run off or your husband with somebody else and then all of a sudden you realize man I'm you know uh, I don't like that <laughs> and uh, uh, all of a sudden you put a little higher value on that spouse. If, if I could just get them back. But I, whatever, I, I don't like this. And uh, I'm going to try to get this straightened out. And so Israel's provoked a jealousy. And I've always heard that that far. That this is going to work around to Israel being saved. It's the next part that I haven't heard. Or at least I haven't heard these verses which are explicitly saying it. Different ways people have tried to translate this and so on. But notice what this says. Now, if their offense, that is this sin that they did that has put them sort of out of pocket, we might say. If their offense is the wealth of the world and their defeat, the wealth of the Gentiles, What is the wealth of the world and the wealth of the Gentiles? Is salvation going to the Gentiles? So what Paul's saying, if, and he's not asking a question as if he doesn't know the answer, it's like you could say since almost. You could say it that way. I don't like to say since, since it's an if, but it amounts to pretty much. If their offense is the riches of the world, that is salvation going out to the world, and their loss or defeat is the riches of the Gentiles. That is salvation going out to the Gentiles. That's what's going on now. It's because of what's happened to them that the gospel's going out to the rest of us while the plan on Israel is sort of in limbo, we might say. Notice what he says. How much more is their fullness? that's the key. How much more what? People come up with all kinds of things, but there hardly any other way you can take it. How much more salvation to the Gentiles is going to take place in Israel's fullness? See, now they're a remnant. They're just a fraction of them that are being saved. What's their fullness? That's when they're in their completeness. That's when the whole nation's saved. That's going to be the millennial kingdom. And what he's saying is, if in this time only a remnant of them are being saved and they're out of it and salvation is going out to the Gentiles like it is, how much more salvation is going out to the Gentiles once Israel's where they're supposed to be? This is all historical destiny for Israel, not eternal destiny. It's this destiny of the nation being restored and having a land, being in the land. We see some of that now, but it's not necessarily one that we're uh, looking for in the Bible. I mean, the same land and all, but we don't know whether this is the the final uh, restoration and all that, but when Israel's where they should be and they're saved, and the Messiah's in Jerusalem, and it says you don't have to tell your neighbor about Christ because they'll all know me from the smallest until the largest or the oldest or the youngest, however you want to translate that, then more people are going to be saved than they're being saved now. When you stop and think, all the people that have been saved through the whole church age and then say, this thousand years when Israel's functioning the way it should be, which is what? An evangelistic instrument that God's using to reach the rest of the world. You're going to have more people saved during that time, Gentiles, basically, than saved in the whole church age. Because that's what Israel's, that's what they were picked for. That's the point. When God told Abraham, through you, all the nations will be blessed. Some people say, well, that just means sending the Messiah and it stopped there. But it looks to me like Paul's saying there's more to it than that. And Israel wasn't picked just because God said, I like these guys and I want to make them number one, give them a nice place to live, and everybody else uh, can do uh, scrabble along or whatever the best way they can. God picked Israel to use as a tool to reach the rest of the world. They're an instrument. But they can't be used for an evangelistic instrument until they get straightened out. They have to be saved. They have to have their proper outlook. And then, they're going to evangelize the whole world. So that's quite a thing. When I look at that, I think, that's just another example. This world isn't just drifting along at random. What's happened to Israel isn't something that just uh, came by accident. But mostly I look at that and I say, God's not doing this because he's just partial to Israel. He's picked Israel because he wants to see as many people saved as possible. Well, why doesn't he just reach down and zap everybody uh, and just save them? Who cares where they believe or anything? Just save them. Well, because he uses people. That's one of the problems we have. You know, we need to get out and tell people. One of the problems we have is he uses people, and sometimes uh, we don't do what we should. And we sit around and say, Lord, would you take care of this situation? And many times we're going to have to take care of it. Just, just can't sit on the porch and. Pray about it, and then go back to the television, or or whatever it is. You know, we have to have to get out and do something ourselves. And, and God steps in here and there where something has to go a certain way, and He's the only one that can do it. But I, He uses people, and He's using Israel. But He's interested in more people being saved. So God is evangelistic. And I'm thankful for that. Otherwise, he probably would have let us all go while he's getting Israel straightened out. If that's all this was, is just, to, just to get Israel in a nice place, then probably would have forgotten about us. All right. So Israel's fall results in salvation going to Gentiles. That's going to, in turn, result in Israel getting saved. And then Israel is going to be where they should be when they get saved and they're going to evangelize the world and more people are going to be saved than ever. A thousand years of it and then that will be the end of it historically. But we're talking about a destiny for Israel that's here on earth and that's in, in time. It's historical. I'm not talk, these promises are not connected with eternity except in the accomplishments that are made by seeing people say. But they're historical. People are selected or elected. Chapter 9 Israel is for these, this historical purpose. Well, I don't know about you, but when I saw that part I thought you hear hints of that here and there, but I'm, I haven't seen anybody uh, point this out specifically that that's what Paul says here. And then as he goes on to say wanted to make sure it wasn't over time yet. Then as he goes on to say one of these days Israel all Israel is going to be saved. And that's the part that we uh, at least read where he says in well but even before that. Let me point out a couple of things. In chapter eleven, thirteen, Paul says, And I speak to you Gentiles, as inasmuch as I'm an apostle of the Gentiles, I'm glorifying my ministry. One of the reasons he says I glorify my ministry is if I might provoke my flesh and save some of them. I think what he means there without going into all the arguments is that Israel is going to be provoked eventually to jealousy nationally and restored, but that right now he's doing it individually. And so he's trying to provoke them, and notice what he says, that I might save some of them. So that's what he's doing now. And he says, for if they're casting away, verse 15 is the reconciliation of the world, What is their reception except life from the dead when they get saved? If the first fruit's holy, so is the lump. That is, if the patriarchs are holy, set aside, that's all that means, special, then so is the rest of the rest of the nation. If the roots holy, so are the branches. Then he says that some of the branches were broken off and you, although your wild olive, were grafted in. Don't boast, verse 18, against the branches. If you boast, it's not you bearing the root, but the root bearing you. So that's Israel. Then he, it's interesting what he says. You'll say then, well, the branches were broken off in order that, purpose construction, that I might be grafted in. See, this Gentile... Uh, objector that he, he theoretically talking back and forth with says, Well, yeah, that 's all true, but they were broken off in order for God to get me <laughs> sort of uh, i you know i don 't know how far to take that, but uh, but you could still say that they're broken off uh, in order that God could bring the gospel to the Gentiles.." And it's interesting because you would think and almost everybody would say, oh, you're off there. But Paul says, that's right. That's a surprise. Because the way the person said it, it looks like I'd be on a wrong track. But he says, notice what he says, they were broken off due to their disbelief. And you stand by faith. The only difference between them and you is you're believing and they're not believing. As soon as they believe, then they can be grafted back in. Here he's looking at Gentile versus Israel as a whole. All they have to do is believe. And then God's going to turn this around, Matthew 21, uh, 43 and so on, just like he could take the kingdom from Israel then, he can give it back to them. And he says in verse 23, and those, that is Israel, if they don't stay in unbelief, they'll be grafted back in because God's able to graft them back in again. Not talking about individuals here because if you take individuals, then he'd be saying one believer, Israelite Jewish believer was broken off so that a Gentile could take his place. But he's not talking about believers. It just has this figure of the branches and so on. So these branches aren't individual Jews, but it's a picture of Israel as a whole. And he says God is able to graft them back in. And then in verse 25, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of this mystery so that you're not wise, basically talking to Gentiles now, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel that's where they are now until the fullness of the gentiles come in i think he means the peak of the gentiles time and thus in the sense of then all Israel will be saved just like it says here so one of these days their nation as a whole and we could argue all Israel doesn't have to mean every last single one it could be a general all like uh, all of the people went to the ball game. All Jerusalem went down to John the Baptist. Well, what about the people in the hospital? <laughs> you know, it's that kind of an all. All Israel could be saved. may mean every last one of them, or it may it mean a huge majority of it, but it's going to happen one of these days. And then that's when we've already looked at it, he says. As far as the gospel goes right now, their enemies. But as far as election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. But all this is working around as I've tried to indicate there in point five, much more salvation to the Gentiles. Puts responsibility on us too because God uses man and uh, he's using us at this time. Then I added a point in here, I almost forgot, point six. These insignificant, carnal, material promises of the land and all that unspiritual stuff, according to some people, they get spiritual significance because of God's purpose. These aren't just talking about whether I have a nice plot of ground not. Israel is going to be restored in there because they have a physical job to do on earth and that's to evangelize and reach the rest of the world. And then that turns and gives all these so-called land, kingdom, uh, national, once again carnal, uh, non-spiritual kind of promises, it gives them a great significance. Even Israel doesn't know yet why they were ever elect in the first place. And they don't know what God's purpose is for them. But one of these days, they will. And then as I pointed out there, if God's going to use man, and why else would he have this all going on historically? It seems to me that it's going to take a long time for many more people to be saved than it being saved in this whole church age. There are more people going to be saved than in this 2,000 years that the church has been in existence. So unless God's going to do it in some way of zapping everybody, and he's going to use people like he has all the other times, then it's going to take a length of time. It isn't going to be done in just a weekend or something like that. And so some people say, well, Israel's going to be restored but they have them restored uh, sort of like 11 o'clock and then at 12 the world ends. And So I've I'm, I'm read some of those commentators and I think, this guy looks like he's in our camp. I didn't think it, he was pre-millennial. And then I realized, well, he got around it this way because all oh, Israel's saved and then, bang, you're in the judgment. Uh, so it, that way you don't have to worry about land and all that. But if he's going to use any normal way of, of doing 1,000 years is probably going to be almost a short time compared to 2,000 years for the church, but a lot of people are going to be saved, and I would say this requires some lengthy time period, and it's spelled out for us. So once again, this passage is dispensational also in perspective. Now the next thing in notes Oh, I do have in the notes maybe I ought to just read this. After Paul points out all this that God's doing with Israel and his plan for the earth, notice how appropriate it is his plan for the world we could say, where he says in verse thirty three. In fact, let me translate 32. God has locked up all, that is both Jews and Gentiles, under disobedience. The world as a whole, Gentiles as a whole were disobedient. Then Israel's picked out. They've been disobedient. So everybody's locked up just like convicts under this category of disobedience. He says almost the same thing in Galatians right at the end well not even at the end sort of in the middle of chapter 3 even uses the same verbs there where he says the scripture has locked up everybody under sin galatians 3:22 in order the promise by faith in Jesus Christ be given to those who believe here paul says god has locked up everybody in disobedience same thing is under sin in order that he might show mercy on everybody. So Israel now has been disobedient, so everybody's guilty, everybody's an object, or objects of mercy. And then Paul finishes his whole section of Romans, first 11 chapters, is sort of a unit. Oh, the depth of the wealth and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, his judgments are unsearchable, his ways are untrackable, for who's known the mind of the Lord? who has been his counselor, who is giving beforehand to him and it will be paid back to him because of him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Good place for that when you realize God gave us a chance to get saved now and he's working to get more people saved. Alright, so now moving from the world to the church. Uh, now, we could go through Paul and, and I probably have listed some verses here and there but we see Paul holds to the fact that people have to get saved we could, that, even in an, an eschatological or prophetic plan. He holds to the fact that it, believers are going to be glorified that we're going to be resurrected. We'll see some of that. So that would be really the fact that, let's say I'm saved and I'm going to be resurrected. That's prophetical, but not. we don't often think of that. We just sort of take it for granted. But God's merciful, and on this point I'm trying to show that the departure to heaven is before the day of the Lord. Assuming we've got some background and realize that God's going to, Christ is going to come actually and take the church out. right? Now, some things you can take for granted. I just thought it might not hurt to spend a little bit of time on this next point. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he's just finished discussing that the resurrection is part of the gospel, that we have witnesses and so on. Can't just junk the resurrection and still have a gospel. Though some theologians think they can. But in verse 50, Paul says, and this I say, brothers, that flesh and blood are not able to inherit the kingdom of God. Or we can put it this way, I can't go to heaven in this body Uh, just like it is. Neither does that which is corruptible inherit incorruptibility. I'm I'm showing you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that is die, but we will all be changed. talking to believers. We're not going to all die, but we're all going to be resurrected and glorified. In a moment, at the batting of an eye, and the last trumpet, and as he continues on, and that, and uh, then he ends up and says in verse 58, So then, my beloved brothers, be firm, unmovable, abounding in the work of the Lord always, since you know your labor is not vain in the Lord that you're going uh, to be resurrected and and glorified. Well, notice what he said. You can't inherit the Kingdom of God. Flesh and blood can't inherit it. You have to be changed. It seems to me when I look at that, the fact that we have to be changed seems to deny that This is going to be a gradual kind of thing that he's talking about here, what I'd call a progressive aspect. It indicates that there's a specific point that we're talking about. Paul's clear also in places like Ephesians without looking there, uh, in those passages right now, that the church is a new entity and it's a mystery that wasn't previously revealed. Then if we look in uh, Acts 2, and also in eleven fifteen, the beginning of the church is abrupt and sudden. Day of Pentecost. Lord says 40 days with them, says, Stay here in Jerusalem. Baptism of the Spirit's coming, and so on. So he doesn't allow for any progressive beginning of the church either. Just uh, look at Acts 15 for a moment. Hope I remembered the right verse when I wrote that down there. Okay. Sorry, I'm looking in Romans. I've said that more than once in class and, and most of the students, if they've done any speaking, they run into it. You're, you turn to Corinthians and you look at your passage for the... Sunday morning message and this doesn't look familiar. Then you look and realize this is 2nd Corinthians. <laughs> you know? uh, here's Peter, when he, when he was called, what I would think called on the carpet, or like you're at a court-martial or something, you're called up before the people and say, give an account of yourself what are you doing over there going to the Gentiles? And in that process, and he's talking about what happened, he says, I need to pick up somewhere and I don't want to translate the whole thing. (laughs) In verse 13, and he declared to us how he saw an angel, that's Cornelius in his house, standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and ask for Simon or send for Simon who is called Peter, who shall speak saves, actually, words we could say practically, to you, by which you'll be saved and all your house. And then he says, and while in the and in the beginning while I was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as upon us in the beginning, or while I began to speak. So he's saying the Holy Spirit fell on them just like he did on us in the beginning. That is Pentecost. So this verse is commonly used to show this is where the church started at the day of Pentecost. When I'm saying on that next point, in Acts 19, 1 through 6, is Paul doesn't allow for any progressive beginning in the church. Most of these dispensational changes, like Noah, there weren't many, but God brought Noah over from the previous pre-flood days, brought him over to start the next, we could call it dispensation. And we go through, and that's a common practice. When we get to Israel, God just didn't demolish the world at the end of the Old Testament, start the New Testament. But the church started on that day. Now everybody believes added in when they believe. But remember in Acts nineteen six it says it came to pass while Apollos was in Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions he arrived at Ephesus and he found certain disciples. See, so these are disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, you don't normally see a believer. I mean, I didn't come here this morning and say, did you people receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? See, I'm sort of taking it for granted. So if Paul's asking him, he has some reason to ask that question. There's something here that's not ringing quite, quite right. is about what he's saying here. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, Yea, not even if there is a Holy Spirit. We haven't even heard if there is a Holy Spirit. So these are disciples. And he said, What were you baptized into then? And they said, into John's baptism. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you couldn't have been baptized into Jesus Christ. So what were you baptized into since you're disciples? John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people, speaking to people regarding the one coming after him, or that they might believe on him, that is, on Jesus. And when they heard, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and Paul placed his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them. So they didn't have the Holy Spirit. So here we have people that responded to John the Baptist's baptism. They heard about Jesus, but they had never believed specifically in Jesus Christ, and, uh, in the sense that we do now. And their disciples apparently coming over from sort of an Old Testament situation, believing what John the Baptist said, but they hadn't gone anymore. And they're not in the body of Christ. And we're a ways down the road here, 15 or more years after the cross. And these people are still around. They're believers but still in that Old Testament sense. It's not until Paul tells them about Christ, they believe specifically in Christ, then the Holy Spirit comes on them. They didn't have the Holy Spirit before, which comes on everybody when they believe in Christ. And so, what that shows is that you are either in the body of Christ or you're not. Then that, while there were some of these people that sort of trickled on and so on, the church started like this and you're either in it or not there isn't this automatically everybody in the Old Testament sort of oozes over progressively into the church because you can be an Old Testament saint and even more than that respond to John the Baptist and you're still not in the church even after it started until you believe specifically in Jesus Christ so what I'm saying uh, probably already said it twice but <laughs> saying it again is that all those Old Testament saints, they didn't automatically become members of the body of Christ. They didn't automatically become the church. The church started at a point in time. You had to believe specifically, and the fact that you were saved before didn't, uh, let me say, a believer before doesn't make you automatically part of the church. So the church is a separate entity, starts just like that. You're either in it or you're not in it. Regarding the end of the church age we have all these different views, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, partial rapture. Uh, I'm just saying the end of the church age is the resurrection departure to heaven, all those in the same thing. It doesn't make any difference whether a person, well it makes a difference but I'm saying on this point, whether somebody holds it as after the tribulation or before the tribulation, either one, it's, su- it's sudden. That's the point I'm making right here. Which makes it improbable that there's any kind of connection with what comes after that. It's, in other words, church is taken out. It doesn't just ooze over and progress into the next dispensation. So we have it started like this, it's going to end like this. So I would say that indicates church isn't going to have any earthly relation to the millennial kingdom. And why Why would God, one of the questions I have is why would God wait till after the tribulation period and then right before that blessed time of a thousand years with Christ reigning on earth when everybody's going to be happy at least for the first 900 years maybe, Uh, take the church out deliver them from all those blessings unless there's a separation there's not one people of God which is a problem a lot of people have why would you remove the church at any time from history in fact apart from the other saints if everybody's going to be one in eternity so in in number four, I would say this is an intercalation. I don't, I never heard that word. I don't think until I heard it in theological circles. Uh, intercalation is a parenthesis. <laughs> so what this is saying is here we have Israel's plan or a timeline. Fits in with the 70 weeks of Daniel. But we come down here and here's the cross. And now Israel set aside for this seventieth week, and the church is in here. Church starts here at Acts two. It goes on down until it's taken out. Then we, with Israel's history, that's where we're going to have what's called the tribulation period. That's, that's basically oriented towards dealing with Israel, although it's going to get the whole world, and then the time of Israel's fullness here, or what we call the millennial kingdom. But, but here's, here's the intercalation. In other words, this didn't ooze into the church. church doesn't ooze into the following. The church is just a break in there. God's overall plan, what he's doing with Israel. Remember, set aside. Now salvation is going to the Gentiles. That's where we come in here with the church age. That's going to provoke Israel eventually. And they'll come back in their fullness. We're going to be saved, but that's all in God's program for Israel. The more being saved, all the Gentiles being reached through Israel, that's God's original plan for them. This is, he knew it all along, but we didn't. This is something that isn't revealed in the Old Testament. This is that intercalation or what's going on now while we're waiting for Israel to get straightened out. 2,000 years. (laughs) That's a long time. And when you stop and think about it, and you think, one time I was thinking about is God partial, and I realized... No, they're individually, each individual is just as lost as any Gentile is. Did they deserve it after all they did? No. Did I deserve it? No. (laughs) So you start thinking partiality. The partiality is also to accomplish this purpose on earth. And I'm just saying here's where the church fits in this. We're breaking that timeline. You've probably seen that, but that—that that was like Harry Ironsides and, and so on. They used terms like intercalation, so I thought I'd just throw it in here <laughs> instead of a parenthesis. Well, one still have about two minutes, I guess. Okay. On my point B, we need to get some things clear, but all Christians of this entire age, dead and living, will be raptured at the same moment in history. That's 1 Thessalonians 4 13 through 18. I think that passage, probably a lot of people here can quote that one. You know, that's a famous uh, passage regarding the rapture. The point that Paul's making there and I don't think we have any particular problems with that but we don't want you to be ignorant brothers I'm in uh, first Thessalonians 413 concerning those who have fallen asleep he's talking about Christians who have died so this is the problem what about these Christians that have died in other words the issue here is really concerning the dead Christians in order that you don't grieve just as the rest who don't have hope you don't want to be like that unsaved on this if we believe that Jesus died and rose thus also God shall bring those with him who have fallen asleep through Jesus so he's going to bring uh, the the spirits of of those uh, Christians who have died in the past with him for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are living who are left until the coming of the Lord shall in no wise precede. King James has prevent. Probably meant that in 1611, but I wasn't around then. Uh, but that word, that Greek word there means, will no wise precede those that have fallen asleep. So he's saying, if you're here and we're alive when the Lord comes, we're not going to get a jump start or a head start on the ones that are dead. Which, In other words, they're not losing out. Because the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven, the voice of an archangel, trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ, they'll be raised first. First thing that's going to happen is the dead ones are going to be resurrected. Then we're all going to be... They'll be raised first. That's the point. Then, see, it's the time sequence he's talking about. Then we who are living, who are left shall be snatched up together with them in clouds to a meeting with the Lord in the air, and thus will always be with the Lord. So the point that he's making is the dead ones haven't lost out. When the rapture comes, or what we call a resurrection of the church, and we're caught up to be with the Lord, they're going to be raised, if anything, first, and then we're all going up together. They're not going to be second-class citizens. They're coming along in the caboose something like that. So they haven't lost out in that sense. This is an encouraging hope, and I just pointed out something. Sometimes you can study this. I won't go into it now. But the rapture is presented in the epistles and wherever you read it for Christians. This is the blessed hope. I used to preach that, and it finally dawned on me, I'm preaching that like it's a threat. I'm I'm acting like one time a guy came and told me let me tell you what happened this morning. We woke up and the general's sitting there on the GI can, the can, to see if Reveille's being held properly. Well, in the Marine Corps, Brigadier General's enough to shake you up a little bit, and so everybody was holding Reveille very carefully. After that, which was the point of it? And I would use that illustration, the Lord's going to catch you. But actually, the Rapture's a hope. See? It, uh, it's not a threat. Now for Israel, if you read the gospels and those parables, the second coming's more of a warning. You better be ready or you're going to get cut in two and the bits and pieces thrown away and so on. So there's there's even a difference there. The second coming for Israel is a whole different perspective than the rapture is for the church. We're already saved. We're going to be with the Lord the second comings for people here on earth of whom a lot of them need to get saved. All right, so we'll we'll stop there and when we come back, look at uh, chapter 5.